Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jenny LSQ, and this is episode one of LSQ, my new podcast featuring interviews with musicians, songwriters, producers, you know, music people. Some of you may know me already from Sirius XM Satellite Radio, where I'm a daily host on a couple different music channels, and maybe others of you know my name from the pages of music publications, including Rolling Stone magazine, where I've been a writer for almost 20 years. But regardless, it's pretty simple. LSQ is just a phonetic approximation of my last name, which is LSQ. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jenny LSQ. For the first episode of the show, I'm so thrilled to have Sylvanesso's Amelia Meath as my guest. She stopped by my apartment in Brooklyn in late July when the band played at Prospect Park Bandshell as part of the Celebrate Brooklyn series of concerts. I had interviewed Amelia briefly in the past uh, on several occasions, but this was our first chance to really dig in and talk about her background. I'll tell you more about Sylvanesso coming up if uh, you're not that familiar. But the idea here with this little podcast is to make space for more in-depth discussions of an artist's, you know, creative and personal evolution, dialogues that are less focused on a specific new album or project, and that leave room to talk about pretty much anything. I've got some exciting guests confirmed for upcoming episodes, which I'll share about once a month, and if you hang on till closer to the end of this episode, I've got more details for you about that. Also... Since I have an audio archive of interviews dating back, you know, 20 years-ish, each episode of LSQ will also include something interesting from the vaults. Um, Later on, after the interview with Amelia, you'll hear a bit of a phone interview I did in the year 2000 with a then-19-year-old Beyoncé. Yeah, Beyoncé. So I really hope you will listen all the way through to the end. I also hope you'll hit me up with your feedback. This podcast really is a work in progress, and I'd love to know what you think. So, as I say, reach me on Twitter, at JennyLSQ, and if you like this episode, please subscribe. I'll have new episodes about once a month to start. And thanks so much for even listening this far. Okay, so a bit more about Sylvanesso before we get going. Uh, They're an electronic duo from Durham, North Carolina, whose music does that rare and wonderful thing where it makes me want to dance and cry at the same time. Sylvanessa, which is Meath and musician Nick Sanborn, first stole my heart in early 2014 when I saw them play at the Satellite in Los Angeles. 
Their self-titled debut album, released that spring, was an immediate sensation in the indie world, and Sylvanesso have definitely been a huge favorite of ours over on Sirius XMU, the indie rock channel on Sirius XM, where I chill on the regular. Their sophomore album, What Now?, is as awesome as I wanted it to be. It came out earlier this year, and it's just so great watching this band's songwriting become even more powerful, their point of view more focused, their sound more readily identifiable. And I expect that Sylvanesso will be on the road for most of 2018 as well, so bookmark Sylvanesso.com and make sure to see them when you can. Okay, so without further ado, um, let's get into it. Amelia Meath of Sylvanesso on LSQ. Sco. Thank you for coming over to do this. Thank you so much for having me. It's my first interview I'm recording for the LSQ podcast. I am honored. Thank you so much. I definitely want to start by talking a little bit about where the hell you came from before we met, which the first time that I remember meeting you was when Mountain Man was on tour with Feist doing backing Vox. Yeah. It was Uh in between the reminder and... Yeah, Metals. yeah. So that would have been like maybe like 2010 or 11. And I remember that I heard Mountain Man's music and was like, "Oh wow, this is so cool!" So, how did you end up there? Tell me a little bit about that. How did how did your project with your friends end up stepping onto that stage? It was it was like a dream of of that period of the internet. In that I was at Bennington College. Um, in Bennington, Vermont, where Molly and Alexandra both went to school. And the band came to be through like a series of strange mix-ups of like us learning each other's songs. Mm-hmm. And I moved off campus and into a beautiful blue house in North Bennington, which is actually the town that the short story The Lottery is written about. Okay. Do you know that short I story? Don't. It's a terrifying story, and it was written. It was written by the by either one of the professors or one of the significant others of the professors of the college. Right. But you slowly realize throughout the story, it's like something you read in high school. It's like five pages long, and by the end of it, you realize that this meeting that you've been reading about is actually about a community deciding who they're going to stone that year. It's wow. very dramatic. So for anyone listening, North Bennington is where the lottery is placed. Either way, I moved into this beautiful blue house and we wanted to have a house show to commemorate it. And I asked both Molly and Alexandra to play at that show. And then we realized that we should just play together. And was that your first band? Yeah, that was my first band. Yeah. And then like we played and Alex Bleeker, who's in real estate, was like, well, you need a name and you need a MySpace page. (laughs) (laughs) because you did because we did yeah and he was like you really should like i remember we were in the library and he was like you really should have a myspace page and i was like fine and really like bleaker got mountain man our first record deal wow yeah which was with underwater peoples okay do you you remember that label i do yeah it was with them and then we signed with partisan and we signed with Bell we signed with Bella Union and that all happened in my last year of college. So I was like managing Mountain Man 
and organizing all of these deals. Right. I mean, I was... but did, was it like leading up to that? Was that a thing you wanted to do? Did you th- think I should, I want to play music. I want to play shows. Oh no. I mean, I will, I mean, yes, but always like in the most, I always wanted to do something that was performative. Right. So I was at school getting my BA in my gold plated BA. <laughs> in uh, physical theater and performance right so is that actually what the what the what the department or whatever is called is physical theater at bennington you make up your you you make up the title of your okay yeah so that's mine right physical theater and performance right because you were that encompassed what sort of array of disciplines for you i did a lot of dance right i did a lot of actual theater i did a lot of experimental theater so physical theater viewpoints, buto dancing, right, all sorts of wild out there stuff, and uh, and then I tacked on the performance there at the end just to really take it home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a star. <laughs> and where did where do you think that kind of spirit? Uh, came from I mean had you had you always been a theatrical kid or was it was it did you was it sort of an artsy household that you grew up in yeah it was my mom was an audio producer uh for NPR in the 70s oh wow yeah you can actually look her up she did stories under the name Maluzan or Allswang and she made amazing out there it's like listening to noise music like most of them were for like early, early, like when NPR was like punk as fuck, okay. you know, and she did. Wow, this was fascinating. Yeah. And she did stories for all things considered. So she did stuff like most of them were about cooking because okay. that whole my mom's like all about baking and cooking in general. She had like a cooking column in the alt weekly mm-hmm. uh, in Eugene, Oregon. And that's where she was making these stories out of. So she did a piece on rhubarb. And about how it simult like the word simultaneously was used on film sets as a way of creating hubbub conversation. Like everyone would just oh, say really? rhubarb, 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 Yeah, which sounds like Does she narrate them as well? Yeah, you can. It's amazing hearing her too because so she had my sister when she was twenty one. It sounds very ASMR what you're describing. It really is. It totally is. But it's like before then. And it's also like they're far out. It's like she was doing stories about abortion or by like interviewing women who like just talking about the idea of having an abortion in the 1970s, in, right. you know, which was wild. Right. Like interviewing her friends. So she's a pretty cool lady, your mom. She's a badass. <laughs> she's a total badass. And my dad was in children's television. Okay. So he did uh, Where in the World is Carmen San Diego. He produced that or was the like... It's it's all it's starting to make sense. Mm-hmm. This Amelia that is before us, because <laughs> I feel like one of the f- the first time I saw Sylvanesso was at um, Spaceland Satellite. What's it called now in LA? Oh, wow! And in January or February of that year, what year? Whatever year that was, <laughs> two thousand. That the first album came out. Thirteen. Fourteen. Fourteen, probably. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I really loved about that show and about you guys immediately was just that it, your comfort level in front of the audience, I mean, not just physically, but also like 
something about the a parent who produced children's television thing. I don't know. It's like I feel like an audience at a concert are like children and you have to in a way be willing to treat them like children because <laughs> you want to encourage the childlike behavior in them or something. That's totally real. You yeah, I mean? or you, you have want to, to get them everyone... to be willing to get to just be um instinctive or something. Yeah, but that's the thing though is that it's not actually like you just want to get them so you just want them to give themselves permission to like be like present and react to things because everyone's told to not, which like is kind of a childlike quality and that we don't know how to we do don't know that. we're not right. We're not well because we're not embarrassed like, about what we might look like exactly with our limbs akimbo. And, and that's the I mean, that's the joy of lighting. Because when when a stage is lit, people feel permission to to react in genuinely because they know that no one's looking at them. Yeah. I mean, and it must be, I'm sure it must vary wildly, uh, widely rather in from place to place in terms of just like traveling around the world. Do you find that the cliche that, that, that certain major U.S. cities audiences are less willing to move than everywhere else in the world, you know, like New York? I was went to see The Kills the other night, and they, you know, a band you should rock out to, mm -hmm. and the audience who clearly loved the fucking show, no yeah. one was going anywhere, but no one was going anywhere. They were just kind of standing there, and I was watching from a balcony, and I thought, like, people always say this about New York audiences, and, and it's often true that they don't give themselves permission to like go nuts but brooklyn steel sylvanesso show i was at people were dancing their asses off truth i was really happy with those shows i feel like though some of the some of the songs are like seem on a level to be about that in sylvanesso oh yeah yeah it became that it was interesting because we wrote the first record and like you can hear on the from the first record to the second record also, on the first record, I was just, like, learning how to be a lead singer. Because in Mountain Man, you're, we were just one voice. Right. You know, like, I really think that in, on Mountain Man, I learned how to stand on stage because there was nothing else to do. Yeah. Like, so you get really comfortable up there when you're forced to just stand there. Right. All the time. Like, and you don't have anything to do with your hands. And you were used to moving on stage. And you don't. So. Yeah, exactly. And then we realized that, like, when we, because we would get excited while we were playing shows for the first record, like, if we let ourselves get excited, the audience would get excited, too. Which, of course, it works that way. But you never really think about it. Well, I guess also just, like, in the world of indie music or something, it's accepted that you know, you don't want to make too much of a clown of yourself or something. It's almost <laughs> like it's like, oh, you don't want to go too. But, you know, I think that you have to be willing to encourage the audience to do that because they really want to and they really yeah. want you to. And it's every the it's the it's the suspension of every other like it's the one place where you don't have to be like you are in the rest of your life when you're like keeping it locked down. What a freak you are. You yeah, know? totally. Everyone wants to rage. Yeah. Everyone wants to rage. There's like a reason why like the Rolling Stones and James Brown and like Tina Turner. Yeah. And you know, like that's why they have a spirit that makes people go nuts. Like that's why like punk music. Yeah. You know? Mosh yeah. pits. Springsteen. Springsteen. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. I got to see him. Recently. No, like when I was like 
nine nine or like 12 but he played the entirety of the wildly innocent in the street shuffle and i lost my mind wow so your parents were fans yeah yeah mm-hmm. my dad and my godparents took me i think and, and it was, was in that, new jersey was that your not your first concert you mm, been to- my first concert was little feet oh nice <laughs> Mm-hmm. Quickly followed by Jeff Beck and then followed by 98 Degrees. But 98 Degrees was not my choice. That was oh, my dad's choice. Your dad was a big fan of boy bands. I think he was just trying to like <laughs> see like maybe this is a cool into. dad thing to do. But like most of most of my early education in music came from listening to records in the car with dad or like tapes. Right. That we would get from strawberries <laughs> in Massachusetts. But did um, I mean so what started to feel like your music? I mean what was the first so ninety eight degrees you were like no mm-mm. no dice dad but what what felt like your music? My that was like a switch that happened. It was hip hop and it was because I started listening to the radio and carpool okay. in middle school. Right. So what was the hip hop that was like Oh, but it was like your... you know, it was like twee ass like like Mace and Maya on the right. Rugrats soundtrack. Like Puff Daddy, that that one, that record that was sepia tone. The first record I went and bought for myself with my own money was The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which is, yeah, which is a cool first record. Oh, yeah. Um, And then I also got the the first, the Marshall Mathers LP on that same trip. Those were my two. And so then was that was most of the new music you just like dealt into on your own hip hop from sort of from that point or... Yeah, but then like when I got to high school, like it slowly switched. It was like hip hop and then very serious West Coast pop punk, like which started with like Blink-182 and then like the Descendants and like right. reached over into the Damned and then like horrible no effects phase. <laughs> Would you go to the Warp Tour and shit? Like, I know, but I like had, I was too young, you know, I like had pink hair and like (laughs) was like a cool little teeny, teeny. I would like put my mohawk up to walk to Newberry Comics. But I mean, you weren't thinking like the idea that someday you might be in a band or something would, would, would that ever have crossed your mind at that point? I liked that idea, but like my like my concept of that sort of stuff was like you know overarching performer stuff like i really wanted to be in the circus i got really into doing circus stuff and like contortion i was really into contortion for the entirety of high school um yeah yeah or i like saw gypsy at a very young age and really wanted to be a stripper for (laughs) years years (laughs) years <laughs> your mom must have loved that oh she did i would dress up in scarves and like strip for dinner parties this is when i was like eight it was not it was it was tough it was a tough toke <laughs> <laughs> so then the stripper thing left but when i realized what that was but then contortion followed quickly afterwards and that was but that's I- not like a thing you can you can't just be like a contortion like sort of hobbyist i mean it's a, it's like a thing don't you have to you have to really train to I contort did. yeah i did i every weekend I, there was a circus school in burlington and what would be Mont- a or, what would be like um what was a move you were proud to have mastered as a contortionist oh a pagoda the pagoda is like 
the the like like the like first level of dope things you can do as a contortionist okay. other than splits right and the pagoda is when you put your chest on the ground with your head facing forward and then you flip your legs over yourself and you put your feet next right to your head yeah that's and pretty impressive that. and at like at my most bendy i could do that and run around my own head <laughs> I could. I could do it. Wait, so how old? <laughs> I was like... That's so freaky. Yeah, I was like 16. Wow. 17. Yeah. And was this a thing you would just bust out at parties too, where you're just like, yes. I'm going to run around my head now, you guys? Yes. And people are stoned and they're just like, they're what just are you doing? doing? Yes, exactly. That's exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And then I quickly realized that like... Because there was, it like came to a point where it was like, are you going to do circus or are you going to go to college? And circus, I was like doing all this. I would like go to school during the year, and then in the summers, I would go and live in different places and study circus right. intensively. Um. So, but I mean, they're the, again, not to be like. I mean, those are some supportive parents, huh? You know, they're oh, they're deeply. they're like, you know what? You want to be a stripper, and you're only eight. You want to put you, you want to run around your own head, and you're sixteen. You want to go away and be in the circus. They're whatever yeah. is fine. Oh yeah, yeah. So what are chill. what are mom and dad's first names? So chill, Malou and Jonathan. Oh, you guys. Mm-hmm. Good job, Malou and Jonathan. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I love you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So you the so faced with the choice between circus and just normal college real life thing. Yeah, circus people are like theater kids that are also jocks. So it's like a very yeah different mentality because it's like it's pretty competitive. But there's you- obviously something about that, like the physicality of all of these things that really just you know. What do you think appeals to you about that? About all of these sort of... I thought it was cool just because, like, I love vaudeville. Right. If I had been born in a different time, like, vaudeville would be my <laughs> shit. You know? Yeah. Like, I should probably just own it now. <laughs> but, like, that's my, like... Yeah. That's, like, safety zone. Yeah. It's, like, stupid, silly jokes. And were you... And... Were you... Were you... I mean, as a... Like, from a standpoint of singing as a technician, was that a thing? You know, when did you sort of find your voice as a singer and realized that, that, that singing kind of came naturally to you for my whole life. Cause we used to get, you know, like the grownups would get drunk at the dinner table and we would all sing. Right. You know, or like not even drunk, like, right. We would all sing and then slowly, like I would, I just realized at some point that I was good at singing and I got my 10,000 hours by singing along to the radio. Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, like that was how I learned was pretending to be like Billie Holiday and Robert Plant and Foreigner and... Right. You know? Yeah. Those are my... Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell's a master class in singing. Oh, yeah. If you like sing the entirety of Blue, you like really learn how to sing high and low. Well, also Lauren Hill, right? I mean, oh, totally. Yeah. And then, La- I mean, the soul, like... Come on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Twitter, though, something that we have not talked about yet directly, but which I've seen tweets from you about and I want to talk about is being women in music. Oh, totes. Yeah. Which I think I, I've sensed just from, from stuff on Twitter that we sort of have, have a similar mind on this subject. 
Which is why do we still have to talk about this shit? Right? You know. Hey, how about that? But also, we totally do because every time I'm like, I don't have to talk about this anymore. Someone at a show comes up to me and is like, hey, like you said this thing about like being a woman or like you were a woman and you are a woman and you said this. Right. And because you're a woman, it means... Something. Yeah, like, that's because of the world we live in, though. Like, you know, here's and like now, m- like the the like tiny micro sexism that I'm s- starting to see, like I'm having a resurgence of tiny micro sexism mm. in my world. OK, because, you know, like you and I exist in our zones where like, yeah, we're all fucking feminists. Who gives a fuck? Like we just do our we do our great job. Right. And like. If someone points out that we're a woman doing a great job, it's kind of insulting. Yeah. You know, you're like, yeah, dog, like, I just do my shit. (laughs) Exactly. Like, shut up. Yeah. You know, I have a ute. It's cool. Yeah. It's chill with the noticing it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But, um. A ute? I saw. (laughs) (laughs) I saw. I saw a headline on Stereogum the other day, and. It made me so fucking mad. It was about a female performer. And the headline was, So-and-so knows exactly what she wants. Period. That's only a headline because that person is female. Yeah. Imagine if they were like, Bono knows exactly what he wants. Yeah, you'd be like, that's like, not a headline. Yeah, you'd be like, that's fucking, yeah, no shit. Yeah. But like, that's still a thing that people, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, even just, you know, in... You know, I'm, I I often wonder in just casual interactions with people who are friends and who and who I think highly of. I don't think that they're a fucking idiot, but they'll say something that is micro sexist. And I think, am I a dickhead if I just take the opportunity to note, hear what you just said? And, you know, and it's the daily sort of thing of where you're just like, yeah, just let it, you know, let it pass. And acknowledging, of course, that there are only a couple of levels on which I feel that way from day to day. And other people have multiple levels on which they're constantly being just like holding their tongue about something. Cause oh, you yeah. don't want to be a bummer, but even just, you know, one of my good friends referred to a band that is comprised entirely of what are ostensibly women as a girl band. And I've resisted the urge to say, it's not a girl band. It's a band. Yeah, it's a motherfucking band. You know, it's just a band. <laughs> it's not a girl band. And you know, I just, I do sometimes when, I, when when men call women girls, I'll if I'm not afraid about how too afraid of how I'm coming off, I'll say we like to be called women. <laughs> oh, dude, totes. Yeah, you know who set me really straight about that? You know, Juana Malena. Who's that? She's the shit. She's like a. She's. Uh, like a totally awesome experimental musician but also very famous in South America for having a one woman show okay that's like was kind of like like SNL okay but it was just her right it was like Tracy takes on but it was just her okay. and she like had this really successful show and was like you know what fuck it I just want to be like a dope ass electronic musician and makes like crazy awesome music that's like it's really beautiful and it's uh you should check it out okay but either way she opened for feist in south america 
And for the whole time that we've been working with Feist, the entire, like, it had been an ongoing thing with the Feist crew that Mountain Man was, we weren't referred to as girls. Right. We were referred to as women. Right. Because, you know, everyone would always be like, well, the girls want to do, you know, and we'd be like, women, women, women. And (laughs) we were like, we were like 23. Still women. Yeah. 23, 22 and 21. Yeah. And we're hanging out in a room with Juana Molina, who's like 55. Right. At the time. Right. And maybe, maybe a little younger, but for the purpose of the story, she'll be 55. (laughs) And Feist manager comes in and says, like, women of Mountain Man, yada, yada, yada. And Juana Molina says, where are the women? And and we're like, it, it, it's us. And she's like, you're not a woman until you've had a child. <laughs> wow. And I was like, oh. It was like the first time where, and something about her saying it like that. So and you and so what's your takeaway from that? I'm interested in your interpretation. I mean, so you at that moment in that I was like a 22 year old dick. Yeah, like totally right. Like in that moment, I was like, oh, like compared to you, like I am not a woman. Right. Like you are a grown ass woman. Right. Like you run your shit. Right. I'm a little weird baby. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I get that. I don't think that you're a woman until you have a child. That's not fair. Right. But I think, like, in that context, it was the first time that I'd ever been, like, served hardcore. Oh, yeah. But it is interesting to think that that's a major difference between between our mother's generation and ours is the expectation that you are, that you have a child, that you, either by natural means or otherwise, and of course, preferably by natural means is implied, you know, in their generation, I think. Totes. But, you know, this idea that like, well, it's the weird choice not to, that not even is it a 50-50 that you might choose to not have children at oh, all. Yeah. That it's like uh, such an anomaly that it's like there's got to be some fucked up reason why mm-hmm. that you sh- surely you would if you could, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, it's tragic. Yeah. And there's doom. There's also doom. If coupled you, with it, the, if you don't have like kids, if you you're don't doomed. have kids. Well, what are you going to do when you're dying? <laughs> what are you going to do? You know? No, I know. Like, that's going to hold your hand yeah, when you're who's dying. Gonna, yeah, like. Yeah. Which is. Which sucks. Also, like my friends. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Or I'll like. Like, have, I, like I just think you've got to be a real asshole if you get to the end of your life and no one is sad to see you go that you had to make other new humans in order to have anyone be sad about it is kind of a crazy thing to tell oneself. That's the truth. But you know, that's also like the crazy shit about end of life stuff though. Is that like, or all your friends could have like died. Cause that also happens when you get old too. The, the like to have or to have nothing is something when I'm thinking about all the fucking time right now, particularly cause like in my brain, I don't want them. Right. At all. Yeah. Or like, I love my career. Yeah. I love being on tour. Yeah. I don't have a dog because I can't, because I don't want to bring a dog on tour. Tour sucks. You don't right. know where you're going to poop next. <laughs> like, it's a crazy thing to do. Yeah, that is a key. Knowing where you're going to poop. Knowing where you're going to shit is really, like, the most 
comforting thing in my life. I mean, the the like the most comfortable I get on tour is a bathroom with an antechamber, like between the room I was in, a room and then a bathroom. So do you, I mean, do you think you'll tour for, I mean, do you, you know, you look at someone like Willie Nelson, you know, or Loretta Lynn, you yeah, know, or Leonard Cohen, you know, or- who who spends or Bob Dylan for that matter, who spends so much of their life, adult life in a, in a bus on tour, they obviously must like it because they, they wouldn't keep doing it so much if they, if, you know, if they didn't. Mm-hmm. But I mean, do you think that there's like sort of a limit on how long you would be willing to not know where you're going to poop next? I don't know yet. Yeah. I love it. So what are some of the things? Cause I know you came here from doing like kind of a, a sesh with someone or meeting up with someone to. Oh yeah. Or, <laughs> little teeny hip hop babies. Yeah. But still. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's great. Is, so is there stuff now that since kind of just since this new Sylvanasso album came out and since, you know, this is really obviously the most at the point now where Sylvanasso is the most successful that it's ever been. I mean, does there start to seem to be other extracurricular things popping up that you're excited to try and pursue next time you've got a span between albums and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying out the, I'm trying out the co-writing thing, writing songs for other people. Yeah. Just cause it's so much easier to write songs to write pop songs for other people than it is to write for Sylvanesso. Mostly because I really care about what I sing every night. Yeah. You know? And, like, if I'm going to... I want to sing things that I believe in and, like, that are about real feelings and things oh, that are complicated. It, that you mean it when you're singing it. Yeah, now. that I mean and the, that are complicated and haven't been talked about before. Uh-huh. Like, I have, you know, there's so much joy to be had in writing a song that you think that feels unique you know, but there's also a lot of joy in writing a song about revenge. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I don't really need... You don't want to sing I don't it, really but need you're... to sing songs about revenge. Right. But um, it's really fun to write them. And but still, I, in the... that context, though, it's still, I'm guessing, the thing about finding a way to say something that it, where it just hasn't been said quite that way before yeah. is what I take it you're kind of describing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, like, it's different if... If I can, like, figure out how to do that. Because pop songs are, like, the most delicious puzzles. Mm-hmm. You know, they always have the same parts. And the things that you need to make them good are melody and, like, a really cool play on words. And, like, if you can find those two things, like, woof, yeah. it's like, that is, that's like a hair-raising high. Well, facility with words is definitely, I feel like, you know, if you it's an obstacle if you don't have it into ever writing a truly great song. If you, you know what I mean? If you don't have a kind of an ease with, with phraseology. I mean, I think, you know, for again, with die young, for instance, you know, I think one of the things that people connect with about that song in particular is that, that it's like a, there's a a very new thing being said there, you know, that's. Thanks. I was, that was the most, I was, I'm really proud of that song. Yeah. And when I wrote it, it came out of the, like the depths of the worst writing period, like genuine, just like stalemate for two weeks and being able to write that, that song was like a moment of, of actual triumph. What, I mean, what cracked through? What do you, what, what happened? Just sheer uh, force of will. Right. I've also figured out that I write best when I'm a little distracted. 
because then I'm not because what you sometimes what happens is like I'll think of a really good line and I'll be like oh Amelia you're a genius (laughs) (laughs) and then I'll get totally lost yeah you know or I get like way too you know it's like when you think about working out and you like get the high of proudness Like, without actually working out, you're like, you, you put, did it. If you put your workout clothes on, but then you don't make it to the gym, oh, you yeah. still feel like you get credit for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or you're like, in, like, you're like, I'm going to work out today. Mm, I'm so great. Yeah. Like, <laughs> with songwriting. I'm going to make like, sure to mention it to someone Yeah. Today. Oh, yeah. I meditated. Ooh, I'm so enlightened and smart. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's not productive cre- creatively. You're saying no, you yeah, get- or like I can I can really bog myself down if I'm like really paying attention to it, and I'm like, ooh, that sounds like the start of something really good. What but are I you mean, gonna do? But next? I mean, lyrically, like you know, so many songwriters that I've talked to describe a you know somewhat similar process where it's like, oh, the lyrics are like it's that you know that story of McCartney with you know ham and eggs for yesterday, and and it was just the 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 structure of the syllables that that was there a song like die young i'm so curious you know just it sounds like a very real expression and i feel like i learned something about you from the lyrics to that song i mean i know it's it's artifice and it's it's a creation but i was like oh i can really relate to this sort of just like fuck (laughs) (sighs) well i guess uh plan b you know (laughs) So yeah, I guess I just wonder in the case of a song like that, were you just feeling the feeling that that song expresses and, the, and and that inspired the idea of it? Or or was it, you know, one of these where you had just a melody and, and then you found your way to the words? It's both because I do both words and melody at the same time. Yeah. Because like, it is about, like any pop song is really about syllabic structure. Yeah. Like that's where the hook is. Yeah, you know. I guess with it gets the, with interesting as melody. I guess know? it gets interesting as well because you are partners with your bandmate as well. So, mm-hmm. so singing about your view on your on a romantic partnership with your with your bandmate there, that's got to be an interesting kind of moment to I don't I feel like there wasn't anything as much like that on the first album. I mean, did you have to kind of come to a place where you were comfortable revealing something that is that close to home? Yeah, partially that. And also, like, I just don't... Yeah, like, in general, we never really talk about that. Just because, right. like... I usually just keep away from it in general. Just because then, like, everyone will ask me about it. Yeah. I also just hadn't ever written a love song yeah. for him before. You know? Yeah. And uh, I've been trying... You know, and of course, like that fucking goth thing came out of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a love song. You're just like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good, though. Thanks. So good. That was one of the ones. There were a couple. There are always a couple that come out fully formed. Die Young came out completely formed. Yeah. Which is great. And I always have to remind myself that, like, it's actually months of work. Of like getting my little of getting like little Tetris pieces of my brain free to let a song come out, right? Um, yeah, just this, just the openness to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, which takes forever sometimes. I'm always in awe of people who can just write in general. Right? I need to fill back up every time. 
I write songs. Yeah. That being said, I've only written like 20 for Sylvan Esso. And there are a couple of stragglers here and there, but it's a pretty small library of tuning songs. I've got like a little folder of country songs that I've written by accident. Oh. <laughs> that could be good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's all I've got for you for this uh, inaugural podcast interview. Thank you so much for having me. me. Thank you so much for doing this. It's so good to talk to you in a chill and chill environs. Yeah. Yeah. What a dream. What a badass lady. Amelia Meath. Such a boss. Speaking of badasses, uh, let's listen to this Beyonce thing, yeah? I don't have exact dates for these older interviews, but this was sometime during summer of the year 2000, as Destiny's Child were gearing up to go on tour opening for Christina Aguilera that fall. Their 1999 sophomore album, The Writings on the Wall, had already sold a million copies and was on its way to double platinum. Um, And I was working on staff at Rolling Stone at the time, and I had interviewed Beyonce on the phone briefly for a couple of smaller pieces before this. Uh, This interview was for a full-page Q&A, and we spent about an hour on the phone together. Listening back to the interview to get it ready for the podcast, I was truly humbled in retrospect by Beyoncé's graciousness, intelligence, her confidence, and her vision. I really had no idea at the time she would become one of the most iconic, amazing, and groundbreaking artists of her generation. So yeah, thanks, Beyoncé. I'm going to play you the first 10 minutes or so of that interview, but one quick caveat. This audio was recorded over the phone using a mini-disc recorder, so it may sound a little crunchy in places, but, you know, bear with me. So yeah, let's get into it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, Jenny. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How you doing? Cool. I talk to you all the time now. Yeah. <laughs> this is our, what, third, fourth time? Yeah, it's like our third time. <laughs> where, where are you right now? You're at a photo shoot? We're actually at the hotel getting prepped for the photo shoot. Are you guys working pretty much nonstop? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're in different, two different cities a day, performing twice a day. Yeah, so we're they're working us. Has it always been like that? Actually, it has. Mm-hmm. It has been like that ever since we first came out. I think we're like the hardest working female group out. Right. We did more shows than anybody else the first year we came out, and I think we're probably going to be the same way this, this year. You've been singing since you were how old? Actually, about three, four years old. Really? The first performance I did, I was four. 
Wow. It was at a, a little a little school talent show. Mm-hmm. And I sang Imagine by Tracy Spencer. And uh, I did, like, little stuff in Houston. They had the Sammy Davis Jr. Awards. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a Houston Grammys type thing. Right. <laughs> and I did that every year. And then I met everyone else. I met Kelly and... Uh, that's when we started the group when I was nine. So, does it? Did you feel like you were not you were not doing the same stuff the rest of the kids were doing? Did you feel like no, I'm I'm singing, guys? Um, I really. This was my fun. This is this was like the highlight of my life. So, I just felt like I was doing what I loved doing. I was just happy that I had performances to perform at right. and. Um, I was just happy that my parents supported me because if it was anything I wanted to do, it was singing and performing. I used to, (laughs) no one ever wanted to come to my, none of my mom's friends wanted to come to my house because I would make up tickets and make them buy the tickets and I would (laughs) perform, I would give them shows (laughs) and if they didn't buy the tickets, I'll give them to them free and the next time they came, I'd be like, okay, you owe me $2. (laughs) (laughs) So I, this was like, this was my dream. Right. Would you get all made up and dressed? Oh yeah. I would have my costumes, my my makeup, my costume changes, my tapes ready, and I would practice and everything. <laughs> so what were you What were you taking inspiration from when you were that little? Actually, I used to always dance to Anita Baker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I really loved Mariah Carey. When she came out with Visions of Love and I heard her runs, mm-hmm. uh, it was a girl across the street that gave me voice lessons, and she was my first um, vocal coach mm-hmm. and that was when I was really young and I was like how does she do that how does she do that so we used to practice 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 and then I got a another vocal coach this opera singer and he would help me do scales mm-hmm. and that helped me but I was determined to be able to do runs so so tell me a little bit about how the group came together when you were however old you were nine or ten um we met in the auditions for a different group mm-hmm. and um that didn't work out and my father saw potential in us so he started helping us out and and um we would practice at my house and he would conduct the rehearsals and we would try to perform everywhere he would schedule places for us to perform and then we got really really serious and he actually he gave up his job and he became the manager full time mm-hmm. and we all performed everywhere at like convention centers every summer we would perform like every day we would have camp over my house and we would get up and go jogging and then practice and do voice lessons and watch tapes of like the Supremes and Jackson 5 and we would study their mic placement and all of that mic placement? yeah we would study <laughs> what's, everything what's, what's that all about? well the good thing about them if you you watch how graceful they are like everything was perfect the the back in the motown days uh-huh. every hand gesture um gesture every like everything was really really tight so when you looked at the other groups like back then it wasn't as tight as the ones in in the 70s in right. the 60s and the motown days so we would watch the tapes of the motown days so what's 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 mike place we just like oh that. how they the, like how they held their mics like right in front of their mouths. 
because uh-huh. like now a lot of people like muffle the mics and have the mics everywhere. Uh-huh. So you have to sing like right into the mic. Just a lot of technical wow. things that we would study. Right. But we had a lot of fun doing it. And, um, and this is from the time you were like ten. Well, we were about eleven then. Right. About eleven and twelve. We would do it in the summertime. And then we would go to asteroid theme parks and go to, you know, parties and stuff. And it was just a lot of fun, but it was like a, we called it like a camp. So we would do that and perform and practice, perform every summer. And eventually someone was in the audience, our A&R person, Teresa Lava Bear White. And she flew us down to, to New York. We did an informal showcase for Columbia. And they liked us, and we got signed. That was about four years ago. And we were so excited. We started recording the album. We moved to Atlanta. We stayed in California. We stayed everywhere for a couple months, and we had a tutor. And we basically, it was a time of our lives. But it took us a very long time. We started getting impatient because it took two years. (laughs) So we were like, all right, when are we going to come out? When are we going to come out? And I know it was the reason we were too young, um, but we didn't realize that then. But finally, we did, no, no, no. We met Wyclef at the Sony office, and he asked us to sing. And he came to our hotel room to sleep. And our our product <laughs> manager said, Wyclef is here, Wyclef is here. We were so excited. And she came and woke us up. And we like ran. We were trying to, you know, get our hair and stuff together and, <laughs> and brush our teeth. And he came. We had like two minutes before he got got up the elevator. So he came and he asked us to sing, and we sang. And he was like, "You girls can really sing. Y'all are hot." So we did a photo shoot the next day. It was one of our first photo shoots, and he said that he wanted us to sing on his "Stand Alive." remix Mm -hmm. so that was like so exciting for us so we did that and then he did no 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 uh, part two we were the album was finished we just needed one more single and that like was perfect so once that came out we did the video for it we were so excited about the first video we cried afterwards and it was just a very special moment right (laughs) but we did the video the single went number one and um, we sold like two million copies of that single. Then finally, the album came out. Um, we it, the album went gold, and we went over to Europe a numerous amount of times. And we went straight into the second album. We the first album we were young. We didn't do a lot of writing on. We didn't really have a lot to sing about because we were so young. Right. And, <laughs> what, would you, what would you sing about? Well, just just love. Right. But we couldn't get too deep because we were only 14 when we did some of those songs. You're like singing about how boys won't carry your books for <laughs> Yeah. But we did a good job with making the songs. Um, you know, people could relate to them. Older people could relate to them. Right. But it was only so much you could do when you're that young. Right. When it came out, we were 16, but we actually recorded it at 14. Some of those vocals, we were 14 years old. Wow. So a lot of people... They don't. They don't realize that. Right. Anyway, we finally did the next album. We did it in two months. Mm-hmm. First album took two years. Why? Wow, what a difference! Why did it go so much quicker? Because we had a lot to say. Right. We experienced a lot in those two years. Well, in the four years, and I mean, our voices just totally matured. We matured. It was kind of like we were. 
matured from girls to young women. So we knew exactly what we wanted to talk about. We knew what we wanted to sound like. So we got a chance to produce. I got a chance to produce um, on, I think, six of the songs, and I got a chance to write on nine or nine of the songs. And all of us got a chance to, to write. So it was just a way better thing. We right. knew what we wanted this time. The first time we just kind of went along with the flow. So it only took two months. <laughs> and we were... It, we couldn't believe that we were finished because we let we listened to all of the songs and our manager was like i think the album is finished y'all we were like it can't be finished it was only two months <laughs> we got another year to go <laughs> but it was finished so we put out bills 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 and at first we didn't want to put out bills but the label wanted to put out bills and we wanted to put out bugaboo for some reason and they were like, Bills, come on, it has to be Bills. So we were like, you know what? Both of the songs are tight, so we don't care. We'll put out Bills. Thank God we did. So he went number one, and it was um, number one for nine consecutive weeks. The number one song for the longest in 1999, R&B song. Wow. So it broke a record. So that happened, and then we put out Bugaboo, and then we put out Say My Name. Here we are. Here you are there you have it, Beyonce, circa the year 2000. And I think maybe for the next episode of the LSQ podcast, I'll play you some of a 2003 interview I did with Justin Timberlake, and I'll have something like that from the archive in every episode. I've got some insane stuff, you guys, including interviews with Britney Spears, Amy Winehouse, uh, Michael Jackson. So yeah, uh, that'll be a regular feature. And I'm super excited next month as the main guest to have the Nationals, Aaron Dessner, multi-instrumentalist and producer extraordinaire. And we got together on the morning their beautiful new album, Sleep Well Beast, came out. It was great to be able to celebrate with him. Love that dude. I've also got some exciting guests lining up for 2018. Can't say too much about it yet, but I'll keep you posted. Okay, so before I go, a few people I want to thank for their help with getting LSQ Episode 1 off the ground. First and foremost, thanks to Amelia Meath for her time and to Martin Anderson for facilitating that. And thanks again to Beyonce. Um, and thanks so much to Greta Morgan, my dear friend and a very talented musician who releases music under the name Springtime Carnivore and who wrote and recorded the LSQ theme song. Her music is wonderful, kind of reminiscent of a cross between the zombies and Fleetwood Mac to nutshell it for you. Um, and thanks so much to Matt Schusler for mixing and mastering the theme song. Also, thanks to my dude Evan Springsteen for the indispensable engineering assist. Major shout-out to Stuart Matz, at Stu underscore Gazi on the IG, who designed the LSQ logo and makes some cool shit. You should check him out. I'm also grateful to Stefan Marlochakis for his podcasting insights, and you might want to check out his sweet basketball podcast, Open Run. And huge thanks to my friend Jack Dishel, who basically pep-talked me into doing this podcast earlier this year, and I'm so glad he did. Jack makes music as Only Son and has some new jams I'm eager to check out. Plus, he does an awesome comedy series called Drivers, with a Y, that you can watch on the YouTube. And one last thanks to y'all for tuning in. I love you. Spread the word. LSQ. Subscribe. Tweet me. Do, you know, all of the things. Um, and yeah, I'll talk to you next time. 